Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Thursday, February 29th. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Dorothy Hockenberg and Teresa Whitaker. Here's our first story. Former alderman demanded $950,000. Ortiz says Davenport did not adequately defend him. This is by Sarah Watson. A former Davenport alderman, Robbie Ortiz, demanded $950,000 from the city of Davenport earlier this year. Ortiz sent a letter to the city in January alleging the city of Davenport and Mayor Mike Matson did not adequately defend him against allegations that he made racist remarks. Ortiz demanded $950,000 in exchange for not suing the city, according to a letter made public in a records request. It's not clear whether the city has paid Ortiz any settlement. In September of last year, Davenport City Council's lone black alders person, Tim Kelly, accused Ortiz of saying a racial slur in front of him during an informal discussion in August with several other council members after a meeting. Ortiz denies directing any racist statements towards Kelly and sued Kelly in October for defamation. That case is still ongoing. At the time, Matson formed a special panel of community members to investigate what happened and make recommendations, but no findings from the group have been made public. Matson did not respond to calls or messages this week. Interim City Attorney Brian Hare wrote in an email that the city will allow this matter to resolve through judicial processes without offering public comment. Earlier this month, Matson told the Quad City Times Dispatch Dash Argus, the special panel had met with Ortiz and Kelly, but had ceased meeting because it was no longer necessary. Ortiz lost the election for the fourth ward seat in November. Ortiz alleges in his letter that an internal investigation found that Ortiz did not direct racist comments toward Kelly and that the city did not publish the investigation's findings nor clear Ortiz's name. Ortiz also says the city continued to broadcast allegations against him made during public comment at city council meetings. The city, unfettered, allowed my name to be defamed and encouraged this false discourse, Ortiz wrote in his letter. In his letter, Ortiz demanded a settlement, include a statement of the internal investigation's findings, and pledged to work with Kelly's attorneys to dismiss the lawsuit against him as part of the settlement. Kelly said he didn't know of any <clears throat> recommendations by the mayor's appointed panel and said during a February 7th city council meeting, there was a panel for black folks to deal with me that was held off until the election time that they never did anything with because Alderman Ortiz. So our mayor decided to not move forward with anything from that. So what does that say to the black and brown community? That once you do an investigation, you don't even come back with information of your findings. Also, in the months before the election, a former babysitter for Ortiz told police Ortiz had raped her 22 years ago when she was a teenager, reopening a 1999 case in which Ortiz was charged with serving alcohol to a minor. Police in 2023 interviewed several people and closed the case without bringing new charges as the statute of limitations had expired, though police and the Scott County Attorney's Office determined there was probable cause to proceed. In his letter, Ortiz alleges there should have been an external investigation and implies that the police report was written with polit political motivations in mind to help his opponent, 
who he alleges is related to the detective who wrote the report. Ortiz also alleges the city's failure to release results of an internal investigation and failure to look further into allegations of sexual abuse caused him to lose significant business at his bar, Hawkeye Tap, lose the election, and experience public humiliation. Okay, mom's pushing for electric school buses. And this is by Alexis St. John. Ariella Sanchez's daughter, Aida, used to be one of 20 million American kids who ride a diesel bus to school each day. Aida has asthma. When she was little, she complained about the smell and cloud of fumes on her twice-daily trip. When she would come home from school or be on the bus, she got headaches and sick to her stomach. She said, Mammy, I don't feel well. I feel dizzy. Sanchez said in Spanish from Las Vegas, Aida missed classes a lot when her asthma was bad. Research shows diesel exhaust exposure can cause students to miss school and affect learning. She was admitted to the hospital for an asthma attack in second grade, and after that, Sanchez began driving Aida to school. Diesel exhaust from school buses potentially affects one-third of U.S. students, their parents, and educators each day, according to federal data. It's a known carcinogen, plus it contains harmful nitrogen oxygen, ox, pardon me, nitrogen oxides, volatile gases, and particles that exacerbate lung issues. It also contributes to global warming. Most affected by these environmental and health issues are black, Latino, indigenous, and lower-income communities who often rely on buses to get to school and are also more likely to suffer from asthma than other students. Some of the biggest drivers for change are parents worried about their children. For Aurelia Sanchez's family in Las Vegas, things continued to deteriorate. She felt like she had to stop working. I didn't know when we were going to get another call from school about another asthma attack, she said. A few years later, after her daughter started having problems, Sanchez saw the opportunity to get involved in the nascent movement for electric buses. They don't smell. They aren't noisy. They cost more upfront, but cost less to run, and can meaningfully reduce emissions, making them a climate change solution. Now Sanchez has been making this case locally and beyond for four years, even taking a long diesel bus ride to the state capital, Carson City, to plead for funding from the legislature. Recently, she started to get some traction when the Clark County School District, her district, began to swap some of its buses for electric. They still make up only a fraction of the nearly 2,000 in the fleet, but she's optimistic. Some similar progress is taking place throughout the nation as a sense of urgency builds around worsening air quality and environmental injustice related to the warming climate. Children are generally more harmed by air pollution than adults because their bodies are still developing and because they breathe in more air per body size than adults do, said University of Michigan epidemiology and public health researcher Sarah Adar, who studies this link between health and school buses. As they're burning their fuel and the engine is spinning, they often are releasing very, very small particles that can get deep into our lungs and cause havoc throughout the body, Adar said. Kids also can spend considerable time around idling buses, she noted, lengthening their exposure to something that can permanently damage their health. Research has highlighted poor air quality inside older diesel school buses. 
It's this perpetual cycle of bad air quality, said Lonnie Portis, a policy and advocacy manager for the activist group We Act for Environmental Justice in New York City. In hard hit or in environmental justice neighborhoods, he said, you're removing at least some of that by putting electric school buses in the rotation. Some school districts have switched to newer versions of diesel buses, which are more efficient and produce less pollution as one way to reduce students' exposure. Others, especially in underfunded districts, keep their older, more polluting vehicles. Much like Sanchez Liz Hurtado, the mother of four children who ride the bus in Virginia Beach, Virginia, has spent years advocating for electric buses. Her oldest daughter also got headaches riding diesel buses, and she'd drive her to school when she could, she said. Now a national field manager for the grassroots group Moms Clean Air Force and active in a program dedicated to protecting Latino children's health, Hurtado appeals to school districts to buy electric buses. She schedules events for community members to see and drive electric vehicles, hosts webinars and meetings, and teaches others how to reach out to our legislatures. Again, that was by Alexis St. John. Court upholds mask mandate law. This is by Caleb McCullough. A group of parents of students with disabilities lack legal standing to challenge a state law prohibiting mask mandates at public schools, a federal appeals court ruled on Tuesday. In a ruling written by Judge Ralph Erickson, the three-judge panel found that the parents did not show they had been or were likely to be injured by the state law. The ruling reversed a previous court injunction on the law and allowed it to take effect. The ruling is the latest decision in a three-year court battle over a 2021 law signed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. The law prohibits schools, cities, and counties from requiring mask mandates during the COVID-19 pandemic. Reynolds applauded the ruling in a statement on Tuesday and defended the decision to ban school mask mandates. While children were the last, excuse me, while children were the least vulnerable, they paid the highest price for COVID lockdowns and mandates. But Iowa was a different story, she said. Iowa was the first state to get students back in the classroom, and we prohibited mask mandates in schools, trusting parents to decide what was best for their children. Elected leaders should always trust the people they serve, and I promise I would do it again. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Bird said in a statement that the ruling was a win for parents' rights to make choices for their children. Freedom wins in today's court ruling to uphold Iowa's law banning mask mandates in schools, Bird said. Parents have the right to choose what health care decisions are best for their kids. The lawsuit was brought by the Arc of Iowa, an organization that works with people with disabilities. Doug Cunningham, the group's executive director, said that the threat of COVID-19 has substantially subsided since the lawsuit was filed. Still, he said, the decision to accommodate students' health and safety should be left up to local school districts and area education agencies. The public schools of Iowa have a long history of educating those students, including people with disabilities, he said, and they really don't need government to step in and tell them how to do that. Cunningham said he does not expect the organization will appeal the decision further. Schools in Iowa have largely dropped mask mandates as the prevalence of COVID-19 has gone down. Cunningham said he was not aware of any students with disabilities in the state that currently were requesting a mask mandate as part of their accommodations. In September 2021, the Arc of Iowa, along with 11 parents of students with disabilities, 
sued Reynolds and school districts, alleging the law infringed on the rights of students with disabilities. The law was temporarily halted that month when a district court judge ruled that students with pre-existing medical conditions face an increased risk of severe illness or death without the widespread use of masks in school to prevent the spread of COVID-19. That injunction was partially overturned by an appeals court in 2022, but litigation was allowed to continue at the district court level. At that time, the appeals court noted that the circumstances around COVID-19 prevalence and vaccine availability had changed since the lawsuit was lodged. District Court Judge Robert Pratt ruled in November of 2022 that schools can impose mask mandates in some cases to comply with federal law. But in his decision Tuesday, the Eighth Court Circuit excuse me, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals dissolved that order and sent instructions to the district court to dismiss the lawsuit. Central to the lawsuit was the claim from parents that they or their children faced potential injuries from the prohibition on mask requirements. Pointing to existing precedent, the appeals court said a person must suffer an injury that is traceable to the challenged law and is likely to be redressed by a court decision. The court said the anticipated risk of contracting COVID-19 was too speculative to establish an injury. Here, because plaintiffs have only alleged the potential risk of severe illness should they contract COVID-19 at school, the risk of harm is too speculative to satisfy the injury in fact element, Erickson wrote. Okay, from the local Quad City Times, production studio to get $3.8 million. Rock Island-based Fresh Films to Build Sound Stages by Gannon Hannibold. There's a long history of film in the Quad Cities. A new grant introduced by the state of Illinois may help to ensure a long future of film here, too. Governor J.B. Pritzker announced on Wednesday that $10 million in grant funding will go toward local film studio infrastructure projects, with $3.8 million of it going toward Fresh Films, a Rock Island-based film production studio. The grant comes through the Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. As a part of the Illinois soundstage system, the demand for film production space in Illinois is growing every day, Pritzker said in a media release shared on Wednesday. Fresh Films has been around for 20 years, initially starting in Chicago then moving to Rock Island seven years ago, according to founder Kelly Feigley. Feigley said that the $3.8 million grant will go toward building four sound stages, which she li likened to soundproofed warehouses. Each one will be approximately 18,000 to 20,000 square feet, she said, and could be rented by Hollywood Productions. The construction of the stages will come in phases, with two sound stages coming up first. Figley said the grant will make up about 35% of the budget needed to achieve their vision, adding that Fresh Films is scouting out sound stage locations and looking to find local partners to contribute to the remaining amount. We're a nonprofit, so if the studio kicks butt and brings in a lot of revenue, that's going to go back into our training programs, she said. Figley said that this opportunity will bring jobs, economic development, and opportunities for local creatives. Films and television shows can employ a couple hundred people per show, 
and there is so much infrastructure needed, she said. The economic opportunity really spreads well past the just the wages of employing people full-time on a show. Fresh Films works in tandem with Augustana College and trains young folks ages 14 to 26 on all facets of film production. They've collaborated with companies like Roku and Movie Stars, like Rain Wilson and Reith Witherspoon in the past. According to Fagley, the organization's website, students are able to get hands-on experiences working on productions, connections with industry professionals, and apprenticeship opportunities over the course of their year-long program. Fresh Films also takes pride in its diversity, with over 50% of its participants being youth of color, women, and students from low-income school districts, the website said. This latest grant rollout adds to the momentum in Quad Cities and across Illinois to prioritize the entertainment industry. The Illinois Film Production Tax Credit introduced in 2008 is 30% tax credit that applies to expenditures like production spending and crew salaries. It's also been expanded to add an additional 15% credit on salaries for people who live in economically disadvantaged areas, the release said. Unlike other states, Illinois does not have a cap on film and television tax credits, it said, adding that this program has been extended through 2033. State Senator Mike Halpin, who serves on the 36th district, which includes much of the Illinois Quad Cities, said in a release on Wednesday that a Rock Island County location for the new sound stages is expected to be announced in the coming months. Western Illinois film industry has so much potential, he said. Strategic state investment in our film infrastructure, including Fresh Films and the amazing work done at the Quad Cities Regional Film Office, will boost our local economy and give producers an affordable alternative to complete their projects. Distribution Center opens in Walcott. Drivers cruising near the Iowa 80 truck stop in the past year have likely noticed a massive red and tan building under construction. The Iowa 80 truck stop opened its own distribution center in January at 510 Sterling Drive behind the museum. It has a total of 251,000 total square feet of warehousing space, with a big chunk of that, 117,180 square feet, to be used to house trucking accessories for the online trucking accessory superstore, iowa80.com, and for the retail businesses inside the truck stop. At a ribbon-cutting Tuesday, Delia Meyer, president of iowa80.com, said the building was built extra large on purpose with the intention of bringing in new businesses to Walcott. The remaining 128,959 square feet is available for lease or open for third-party fulfillment. The retail business began in 2000 and is the e-commerce arm of the truck stop, said General Manager Deanna Slack. The company celebrated its 20th anniversary during the COVID-19 pandemic, she said, but it was not all bad news. The new facility greatly expands on their previous capacity. Featured in the new Iowa80.com distribution center are 10 state-of-the-art loading docks, 33,371 linear feet of racking, 32 feet high ceilings, and a fireproof room of 9,400 square feet. It is also fully air-conditioned. 
During the pandemic, trucking thrived and America remembered how important the professional driver is to our world, Slack said. We took this time to begin implanting our vision for a bigger and better installation system. Plans for the building were finalized in 2022 and the first order was shipped out on January 16th of this year. In addition to the Walcott stores, the new distribution center will fulfill orders for online trucking accessory orders, as well as ship product to the brick and mortar stores operated by Iowa 80 Group, including Kenley 95 Petro in North Carolina and Joplin 44 Petro in Missouri. Moving into the building, however, was not as easy as it sounds. Slack said the big move was scheduled for January 12th when Iowa saw blizzard conditions with nearly a foot of snow and record cold temperatures. Everyone showed up, they somehow got here and worked all weekend to move product, and today it's 72 and another record. So I'm going to call it every time, she said with a laugh. It goes to show the Iowa strong work ethic of Iowa 80. And a real brief article here, Old Chicago in Bettendorf closes. A restaurant chain known for its deep dish pizza has left the Quad Cities. Old Chicago at 3030 Utica Ridge Road in Bettendorf has closed the doors for good, according to a spokesperson for the company. The location officially closed on Sunday, February 25th. The company did not name a specific reason for closing the restaurant, but said closures are influenced by everything from real estate, new restaurant decisions, and lease negotiation strategies. We do not take these decisions lightly, and after careful review, we have made the strategic decision to close this location. Old Chicago will be offering employees opportunities to transfer to other locations wherever possible, the spokesperson said. The restaurant has locations in Rockford, Ames, Dubuque, and Sioux City. The parent company, SPB Hospitality, owns several other restaurant chains, including Logan's Roadhouse. Okay, born rare. Quad Cityans born on leap year day talk about life by Gannon Hannibold. Here's a riddle for you. Barbara Ellingsworth is celebrating her 11th birthday this year. Her daughter is 18 years old. How is this possible? The answer, Ellingsworth, like many other Quad Cityans that reached out to Quad City Times Dispatch Argus this week, was born on February 29th. Statistically, she's got the least likely birthday out there. Because Leap Day only occurs once every four years, people born on February 29 only get to celebrate their true birthday once every four years, too. But the Leap Day babies we talked to were pretty nonchalant about the experience. In non-leap years, some celebrate on February 28th, others celebrate March 1. Some just celebrate on both. I celebrate my birthday every day, said East Moline Kelly McGuffey, a retired 29-year employee at Milan Blacktop. McGuffey will be celebrating turning 68 this year. He's been married 48 years and has two adult children, but McGuffey's still four years from his 18th birthday. He said he's looking forward to celebrating this leap day with his neighbors playing card games. Still, he downplayed his birthday uniqueness. There's just as many people born on the 29th as any other day of the year, he said, and to an extent, he's right. According to data aggregated by 538, tallying up birth rates from 1994 to 2014, an average of 10,462 babies are born on February 29th every leap year. Compared to other holidays within that year, that's a higher average than Christmas, April Fool's Day, and New Year's Day. 
So when you tally up the fact that all other birthdays have three extra years to pad their numbers, there's really no competition. Having a leap day birthday, a roughly 1 in 1,500 chance, is less likely than flipping a coin 10 times and getting heads every single time. Some with a February 29th birthday like to relish in their uniqueness. Ellingsworth has three leap day related t-shirts, a necklace, and this week her nails are painted with frogs to, commemor to commemorate her leap. On leap day in 2020, Ellingsworth joined the other leap day babies on a cruise to the Bahamas. She swam with dolphins, visited Atlantis, the resort, and connected with other unique birthday celebrators like herself. She took inspiration from that trip and made a Facebook group for Quad Cities Leap Babies to join and connect. Having that kind of rare birthday, you don't see as much stuff as other people do, she said, outside a Davenport co coffee shop this week, while wearing a colorful tee that boasted, born rare. I treat it as a fun fact because I get to tell people I'm 11 and I get weird looks. Ellingsworth said one struggle on being Leap Day Baby is online drop-down menus. Sometimes she gets error messages saying her birthday doesn't exist. Davenport-born Leap Day Baby Renee Newman turns 12 this year and has a unique problem with her birthday, too. Oops, I lost my page here. Newman said she ran into issues on her long-awaited 21st birthday, having to wait until March 1 to celebrate reaching legal drinking age until March 1. Other than that, Newman, who has since moved to St. Louis, said being a leap baby is all roses. In a way, I will be forever young, she said via email. St. Ambrose University biology student Emma Peters said this will be her first leap year birthday without a long-running celebration. Since she was four years old, celebrating her first birthday, Peters said her family would take her to Disney World to meet the Disney princesses. This time around, Peters said she'll just be in class. In the non-leap years, Peters said it's mostly a normal birthday experience, though she does have to field her fare of share of hecklers. There are sort of people who are like, oh, I'm not going to wish you a happy birthday until you get to your actual birthday, she said. Peters, who was born and raised in Davenport, is hoping to become a physician's assistant when she wraps up her studies at St. Ambrose. Still, she won't be the only local Leap Day baby in the medical field. Nurse and Moline resident Ashley Woods was born on February 29, 1984, making this year a big milestone, the double digit 10 years old. My kids get a kick out of it, she said. I have a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old, so I'm older than one and younger than the other one. Woods said she had a few patients come in with leap day birthdays, a miniature bonding moment that can lighten the mood. Davis Spittle said the community of those born on Leap Day is a small world. His brother-in-law has the same birthday, too. Biddle, who has three children and runs a family farm in Joy, Illinois, is celebrating his 15th birthday this year. By the time his next birthday rolls around in 2028, Biddy will have an even more unique milestone. His grandson, now 12, will have celebrated as many birthdays. When the next leap year rolls around, they'll both be celebrating their sweet 16. 
However, during a phone interview on the way to the airport for a birthday vacation this week, Biddle realized what his 16th birthday next leap year really means. I'll be old enough to drive, he joked, <laughs> without skipping a beat. After all, he's told that one before. Okay, we have Quad City Fire Hockey Benefit Game planned. The Quad City Fire Hockey Team will present its 16th annual benefit game at 3.30 p.m. Saturday, March 9th, before the Quad City Storm Game at Vibrant Arena at The Mark, 1201 River Drive, Moline. In 15 years, the fire has raised over $75,000 for various causes. The team is made up of more than 15 firefighters from six local career and volunteer fire departments. This year, in partnership with the Quad City Storm, the team will be playing to raise money for the 100 Club of Illinois. The club provides resources, several forms of financial support, access to training, and moral support to families of first responders killed in the line of duty and active duty first responders throughout the state of Illinois. Tickets are $5 and will be available at the door. All proceeds will go to the benefit. The Quad City Storm game, which follows the benefit, will be First Responder Night. All first responders will receive a free ticket to the game when they show a badge. For more information or to make a donation, contact Jake Reed at j.reed3130 at gmail.com or 309-236-7424. And now... You are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And we'll turn to the obituaries. Judy L. Hazen, August 14, 1944 to February 26, 2024. Funeral services for Judy, Judy L. Hazen, 79, of Davenport, will be 1 p.m. on Sunday at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home, Bettendorf. Family will greet friends on Sunday from 12 p.m. to service time at the funeral home. Burial will take place at the Rock Island National Cemetery at 11 a.m. Monday. Those wishing to attend the burial will meet at McGinnis Chambers on Monday at 10.30 a.m. Judy passed away on Monday, February 26th at Genesis Medical Center, East Campus, Davenport. Judy was born on August 14, 1944, in Davenport, the daughter of Herbert Creighton, and was raised by her grandparents, Frieda and Isaac Creighton. She married Donald L. Hazen on July 16, 1977, in Davenport. He preceded her in death on January 8, 2006. She owned a private detective agency prior to being a bartender for the Mississippi Hotel and the Iowan Ice Cream Store. Judy was a member of the PTA, Boy Scouts, and Moose Lodge. She enjoyed bingo, traveling, RVing, country music, karaoke, and being activities director for her RV. Survivors include her daughter, Kathy Lorsider of Ozark, Missouri, her sons, Sean H. Wagamon of Davenport, Donald L. and wife Deborah Hazen, Jr., Jeffrey and wife Debbie Hazen of Davenport, nine grandchildren, several great-grandchildren, sisters Marie Franzen, Sue Ruggerberg, Frieda Creighton, Julie Whitcomb, Barb Powell, and brothers Jerry Creighton and Herbert Creighton, Jr., she was preceded in death by her father, grandparents, 
husband, daughter Karen Westerveld, her grandson Sergio Wogeman, sister Mary Brooks, brother Alan Creighton, several aunts and uncles. Memorials may be directed to Sean and Kathy. Online condolences may be shared with family at www.mcginnischambers.com. In Moline, Alma Madeline Tilburg, June 10, 1937, February 26, 2024. Funeral services for Alma Madeline Tilburg, 86, of Moline, formerly of Davenport, will be 11 a.m. on Monday, March 4th at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home in Bettendorf. Burial will follow at the Rock Island National Cemetery, Rock Island. Family will greet friends on Monday from 10 a.m. to service time at the funeral home. Alma passed away on Monday, February 26, at Hope Creek Nursing and Rehab, East Moline, Illinois. Alma Prine was born on June 10, 1937, in Ava, Missouri, the daughter of Ursel and Ellen Wilson Prine. She married Richard Howe in 1953 in Moline. She then Donald R. Taberg on May 15, 1982. He preceded her in death on March 14, 2015. She worked for a short period of time at Short Hills Country Club, East Moline. She enjoyed lawn care, crocheting, and spending time with her family. Survivors include her children, Terry Evelyn Howe of Des Moines, and Barb, husband David Blunt of Moline. Stepchildren Lisa Berenke of Rock Island and Donald Robert Tilburg, Jr. of Corpus Christi, Texas. Ten grandchildren, several great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. A son-in-law, Doug Howard of Doney, Texas. Sisters Beulah Essary of Davenport, Lois Woods of Carboncliff, Illinois, Faye Chapman of Farmersville, Texas. She was preceded in death by her parents, husband, daughter Shirley Howard, grandsons Richard Ho and Casey Ho, brothers Basil Prine, Jerry Prine, Daniel Prine, sisters Sally Paul, Opal Johnson, and Joyce Lutons. Memorials may be directed to wounded warriors. Online condolences may be shared with family at www.mcginnischambers.com. In Eldridge, Anthony Joseph Tarczynski, Sr., December 26, 1940, February 27, 2024. Anthony Joseph Tarczynski, Sr., Big Tony, 83, of Eldridge, passed very peacefully on Tuesday, February 27th, surrounded by family after a brief illness. Big Tony, one of nine children, was born on December 26, 1940, to Tony and Kate Tarczynski in Davenport. After graduating from Assumption High School in 1959, Tony worked at Romer Machine and Welding Company in Davenport, which was co-founded by his father in 1940 and became co-owner of Romer Machine along with his brother John. On January 25, 1964, he married the love of his life, Sylvia Holzer. They had two sons, Anthony Jr. and Scott. Tony enjoyed a number of activities and hobbies. He coached baseball for many years in Davenport, then in Parkview. He was an avid golfer and was always ready to give you a pointer on the golf course or take your quarter for a greenie. 
He loved his Iowa Hawkeyes, whether it was basketball, football, or wrestling. His favorite thing to do was walk out the tunnel at Carver Hawkeye Arena with the wrestling team with his brother Nick. Tony and Sylvia loved to travel nationally, internationally, going to several Hawkeye Bowl games in Mexico, New Zealand, and Aruba, to name a few destinations. But his favorite trip was to northern Michigan for the annual family reunion, which is embarking on its 57th year. After retiring from Romer Machine, he was most proud when his sons, A.J. and Scott, took over and expanded the business. He loved being around family and friends during the holidays, and at any time, a pop-up Chitinsky party was started. It was given at a Euchre tournament. It was a given that a Euchre tournament was in the works. Tony is survived by his wife of 60 years, Sylvia, sons Anthony and his wife Connie Tarczynski Jr. of DeWitt, and Scott and his wife Patricia Tarczynski of DeWitt. Grandchildren, Aaron, uh, wife Dustin Tarczynski, Catherine, Jesse Brackey, Eden, husband Nikki Johnson, Trevor Tarczynski, and Elizabeth Tarczynski, siblings Mary Ann Tolbert, Evelyn Joe Everhart, Nick and Leanne Tarczynski, Tom Tolbert, Evelyn and Joe Everhart, uh, Tom and Sally Tarczynski, Kathy Picone, and many cousins, nieces, and nephews. He was predeceased by his parents, Tony and Kate Tarczynski, sisters, Judy Sunderbrook and Teresa Fitzmaier, brother John Tarczynski, sister-in-law Karen Tarczynski, and brothers-in-law Sean Tolbert and Joe Picone. A visitation will be held at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home on March 1, 2024, from 3 to 7 p.m. To honor Tony's love of the Hawkeyes, we ask that you wear your favorite Hawkeye apparel. Funeral services will be held at St. Anthony's Catholic Church in Davenport at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, March 2nd. The family of Tony Tarczynski would like to thank the staff at the summit and at Trinity ICU in Bettendorf for their amazing care and support for Tony and his family. Memorials may be made to Alzheimer's Association and Gilda's Club. Okay, I'm going to turn to the opinion section, and I'm going to start with letters to the editor. Don't repeat history by supporting Trump. The similarities of Trump's hate rallies and the Hitler's speeches are shocking. Hitler played on people's hopes, fears, and prejudices. Hitler falsely claimed Jews and minorities were to blame for all the problems in Germany. Trump's hate for minorities and asylum seekers is also blaming them for the problems of this country. Hitler refused to believe that Germany lost World War I. Trump refuses to admit that he lost the 2020 election. In 1923, Hitler attempted a coup and failed miserably, was tried and went to prison for treason. January 6th was a coup that failed miserably. Now Trump has 91 counts against him in several cases. The Great Depression hit and millions of people were out of work in Germany. So Hitler's promises became very attractive to the citizens. Trump, wa Trump wants the stock market to crash, people to suffer, so his ideologies look attractive to his cult followers. When Hitler came into power, they thought they could keep him in check, but mayhem started. People were killed and disappeared. 
After Trump lost the election, he wanted Biden, his family, and Obama arrested. Hitler worshipped his manifesto, Mein Kampf. Trump repeats excerpts from this manifesto and calls for the termination of the Constitution. It's insanely ignorant that people will bow to a man that loves Putin and idealizes Hitler. Where the red-hatted people are saying Heil Trump, a man that is utterly devoid of any moral compass. Before our loved ones start disappearing, let's not have history repeat itself. And that was from Kathy Anden of Kelowna. Our next letter is from Dan Ebner of Davenport. Gave up partisan radio news for Lent. Driving across Iowa recently, I tried listening to the news on AM radio. It was hard to find any news. Most of it was news commentary, partisan, divisive, and toxic. One set of announcers was praising Putin and joked about how we should concede Ukraine to Russia if they would just take Taylor Swift off our hands in exchange. Really? I must confess that I am a news junkie to a fault. I try to read three newspapers every day, including this one, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. Lately, I have been craving international news, but it is hard to find. Local news is also getting harder to find, as the news business lays off more and more reporters. With the onset of artificial intelligence, how will the average reader discern what is true and what is fake? For example, consider the ease at which anyone, anywhere in the world, can make a deep fake pretending to put words in the mouth of any famous person and making fake quotes look real. These changes in the news media are existential threat to our democracy. This year for Lent, I decided to give up radio news and focus on reading the news. I gave up the TV cable news a long time ago. Most of it is repetitious and partisan commentary. So far, my Lenten choice has added more silence, solace, and serenity to my life. I may continue this news habit long after Easter Sunday. And again, that was from Dan R. Ebner of Davenport. Create a Prescription Drug Affordability Board in Illinois. I am a disability advocate for the Illinois-Iowa Center for Independent Living, serving people with disabilities in Rock Island, Henry, and Mercer counties in Illinois. I am writing in support of Illinois creating a Prescription Drug Affordability Board. Consider an individual's diagnosis with traumatic life-changing conditions such as MS, cancer, Parkinson's, diabetes, etc. To treat these health conditions, medication is extremely costly to the individual, but not to the manufacturer. Every day, people with disabilities with underlying diagnosis, such as the above mentioned, are faced with the daily decision to either purchase their prescription, paying their rent, and or buying groceries. High-cost drugs account for nearly one-third of all insurance premiums. As the cost of prescription drugs continues to grow, insurance companies will keep raising premiums on our diverse communities to compensate for the cost. A prescription drug affordability board would have the potential to curb skyrocketing costs of vital medications and provide much needed relief to patients across our state. By combining data-driven research with input from a diverse group of stakeholders that includes people with disabilities, seniors, and individuals with low to middle income, Prescription Drug Affordability Board can identify which drugs pose them most significant challenges and set limits to out-of-pocket cost for individuals. A Prescription Drug Affordability Board is a sensible solution to a problem, if not rein in and controlled will have devastating effects on our diverse communities. 
This ensures that all Illinoisans will pay only what is fair for the prescriptions they need. That was from Herschel Jackson, a disability advocate for the Illinois-Iowa Center for Independent Living in Rock Island. And finally, enjoy Timeless Tickets articles. I really enjoy the Timeless Tickets articles. Keep up the great work. That was from Corey Lenger of Moline. Okay, the next one is by John Donald O'Shea of Moline. He is a retired circuit judge and a regular columnist. And his column today is Attorney, Attorney General, Judge Being Unfair to Trump. Imagine that while you were a boy, that your father died, and that in his will he left you a lot within the city of Moline. That lot, at the time, was valued at $10,000 in his estate inventory. Fifteen years later, you have now graduated from law school, passed the bar, obtained your first job, and married. You and your wife now wish to buy a home. You go to the bank and ask for a $100,000 mortgage. They ask for your financial statement. You state that your income is $90,000 per year, that you have about $50,000 in savings, and that the lot your dad will to you has a value of $25,000. In setting the value of the lot, you take into account the years of inflation since your dad died. The bank loans you the $100,000. Under your note and mortgage, you are required to pay the loan off in 20 years. The bank sets the interest rate at 7%. For the next 20, you faithfully make every payment of principal and interest on time and in full. You also paid all real estate taxes as they came due. After you have made your last payment, the bank gives you a release of mortgage. You now believe that you own your house free. But three years later, the attorney general of your state enters the picture. He sues you for defrauding the bank by overstating the value of the lot your father willed to you and your income. He claims that in your financial statement to the bank, you overvalued your lot by $10,000 and your income by $5,000. The Attorney General claims that had you honestly stated the value of your lot to be $15,000 rather than $25,000 and your income to be $85,000 rather than $90,000, the bank probably would have asked for an interest rate at the rate of 8% rather than 7%. The Attorney General brings in a CPA to support his allegations. He asked that you be assessed a civil penalty equal to the extra 1% interest that the bank would have earned over the 20-year period, or approximately $10,000. The judge rules that for the Attorney General to prevail, it is not necessary that the bank deemed itself damaged by your fraud or that it even relied upon your fraud. The judge assesses a $10,000 civil penalty upon you. Moreover, he assesses interest, compounded yearly, on each of the 20 $1,000 payments interest that you should have made over each of the 20 years of your mortgage. Remember, the bank has never made any complaint of fraud. They deemed that they had been repaid in full. Indeed, 
they may never see a penny of the judge's $10,000-plus award. That may all go into the coffers of the state. Would you feel you had been treated fairly by the judge, by the attorney general? You would probably insist that you have been judicially screwed. That's precisely what former President Trump is doing, and for the same reason. Mr. Trump has previously written The Art of the Deal. Now you and he can combine to write The Art of the Judicial Screwing. And that article, again, is by John Donald O'Shea of Moline, who is a retired circuit judge and regular columnist. Okay, we're going to turn to the sports section now and see what is on the air tonight. In men's college basketball, at 5.30 on FSN, we have Nebraska at Ohio State. At 6 o'clock on CBS SN, William and Mary at Elan. On ESPN2, Memphis at East Carolina. On ESPNU, Longwood at Gardner-Webb. At 7.30 on FS1, we have Michigan at Rutgers. On the Pac-12 network, we have Stanford at Utah. At 8 o'clock... On CBS SN, we have New Mexico State at Liberty. And on ESPNU, we have Tennessee State at Little Rock. At 9.30 on FS1, we have UCLA at Washington. And on Pac-12 Network, we have USC at Washington State. At 10 o'clock on CBS SN, St. Mary's at Pepperdine. And on ESPN2, we have Gonzaga at San Francisco. In college women's basketball, at Five o'clock on ACCN, we have Clemson at Wake Forest, and on BTN, Wisconsin at Maryland. At six o'clock on ACCN, we have Florida State at Louisville, and on BTN, Illinois at Michigan State. At eight o'clock on ESPN2, we have LSU at Georgia, and on SECN, we have South Carolina at Arkansas. In golf this evening, or excuse me, this afternoon at 1 o'clock on the PGA Tour, it's the Cognizant Open on the Golf Network. And at 8.30 on the Golf Network, we have the LPGA Tour, the HSBC Women's World Championship. In the NBA tonight at 6.30 on TNT, Golden State is at New York. At 9 o'clock on TNT, Miami at Denver. In the uh, NHL, we have... Colorado at Chicago at 8 o'clock on ESPN. And if you want to catch some baseball spring training at noon on MLB Network, Philadelphia versus Toronto. At 2 o'clock on Marquee Network, Chicago Cubs versus Colorado. At 7 o'clock this evening on MLBN, the LA Dodgers versus Cincinnati. In soccer at 1.35 this afternoon on FS2, we have the French Cup quarterfinal. And at 7 o'clock this evening on FS2, we have the Championship Cup, first round, leg two. And that does it for what's on TV. We'll do a couple quick articles here. In girls basketball, Spartans Trio earns all district honors. Three Pleasant Valley players and two from Davenport North have been named to the IGCA all-district basketball team. Nine MAC players were selected to the squad, representing six schools. The, Spart- excuse me, the Spartans, who went 19-5 and advanced to the 5A state tournament, were represented by senior Jesse Clemens and juniors Quinn Weiss and Regan Pagniano. 
Davenport North also earned a trip to the Des Moines to Des Moines for the 5A state quarterfinals. The Wildcats were 22 and 3 and placed junior stars Divine Barrage and Journey Houston on the all-district team. Other local 5A players named to the squad were Muscatine senior Briley Seaman and Bettendorf sophomore Olivia McCorkle. Central DeWitt junior and MAC leading scorer Lauren Walker was named to the Class 4A team. Assumption senior Maddie Nagy earned 3A all-district honors after averaging 13.8 points, 4.1 rebounds, and 1.7 steals per game for the Knights. Tipton senior Carly Langenberg and Makokota sophomore Cora Weidel also earned spots on the 3A list. Senior Lily Coyle from Columbus Community earned 2A honors after averaging a double-double. Excuse me, averaging a double-double. She also accounted for 5.7 steals and 3.2 assists per game. The 2A team also included Durant senior Isabel DeLong and Bellevue senior Tegan Humphrey. Calamus Wheatland, which lost to Newell Fonda 68-30 in quarterfinal action of the 1A state tournament Wednesday in Des Moines, placed seniors Emily Bachman and Kaylee Hill on the 1A team. Joining them was Marquette Catholic senior Megan Kramer, who averaged a power double-double of 13.8 points and 15.3 rebounds per game. And another article, Alleman's Hulky named All-State. Alleman Threesome earn honors in 2A. Alleman's Claire Hulky has been named to the Illinois Media Class 2A All-State Girls Basketball Team. Hulky's teammates, senior Audrey Erickson and Adeline Voss, earned honorable mention honors after helping the Pioneers to a 30-5 record and spot in the Elite Eight of the 2A tournament. Hulky, a 5'11 senior, averaged 14.3 points, 4.4 rebounds, 1.6 assists, and 1.3 steals per game. She thought shot 41, excuse me, she shot 45.1% from the field and 79% on free throws. Hulky had a career for the Alleman record books. She finished as the school's second all-time leading scorer with 1,728 points and second leading rebounder with 611 boards. She also was second in shots made, 577, and fourth in three-pointers, 87. Additionally, she totaled 136 assists, 126 steals, and 55 blocked shots. Erickson, a four-year varsity player like Hulky, capped her career averaging 11 points, 4.8 assists, 4.1 rebounds, and 2.8 steals per game, shooting 37.7% from the floor and 68.3% from the strike. Erickson also surpassed the 1,000-point plateau with 1,018, ranking sixth in school history. Her 407 assists are the second most in Alleman history. She also ranks third in three-pointers, 90, fifth in steals, 269, sixth in field goals, 366, seventh in blocks, 51, tenth in rebounds, 40, 427, and twelfth in free throws made, 185. Voss, just a sophomore, averaged 13.5 points per game, including her freshman season at Davenport Assumption. She already has scored 655.54 points. Voss also accounted for 4.9 rebounds, 1.8 assists, and 1.6 steals per game. She sank a school record 64 three-pointers and shot 41.7% overall and 78.9% from the free throw line. 
Morrison's Cameron Veltrop was one of six players named to the 2A All-State first team. The six-foot-two junior stuffed the stat sheet for the 19 and 14 Mustangs. Veltrop averaged 21.8 points, 11.6 rebounds, 3.9 assists, 2.9 blocks, and 2.2 assists per game. Veltrop has already scored more than 1,400 career points, breaking the previous mark of 1,394 held by her sister Shelby. And that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Teresa Whitaker, and my partner at the microphone has been Dorothy Hockenberg. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.